Grab your Bibles, open up to Ephesians 5, starting at verse 1. Contrary to the screen, I'm going to stop at verse 20. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for the Lord's people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore do not be partners with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness and truth, and find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It's shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible and everything that's illuminated becomes a light. This is why it is said, wake up sleeper, rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Loving Father and Almighty God, we thank you for your word in all its truth. There are those in the world, Lord, who would tell us that not all of it is true, that some of it needs to be changed. But Lord, we know that all of it is true and remains true forever. Lord, help us not to be stubborn of heart, but humble and willing to submit to your word in all of its truth, even the hard bits. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, when I was in high school, I played a ridiculous amount of tennis. I played five times a week, I played two comps a week, I played in a rep squad, I had private coaching and squad coaching, I loved tennis, I played a lot of tennis, I watched tennis, I worshipped tennis and I worshipped Ivan Lendl who's on the screen. Ivan Lendl's Czechoslovakian, he was the number one player in the world for a long time. Ivan was my idol back then. I didn't follow Jesus, sadly, I followed Ivan. Now, Ivan had a Mizuno t-shirt, you can see him wearing it with the big eagle on the front, so I asked mum and dad to buy me a Mizuno t-shirt uh, with the eagle on the front so that I could look like Ivan, hopefully play a bit more like Ivan. I used a single-handed backhand because Ivan did, not double-handed like Andre Agassi did. Uh, I even had a hat with a flap down the back because that's what Ivan wore. Now, is there anything dorkier that you can put on? your person than a hat with a flap down the back. But I didn't care because Ivan had one, so I wanted one because I worshipped him. Um, I worshipped him, so I wanted to be like him 
in every way that I possibly could. And that's what you do naturally when you worship someone or something, you want to be like them. But now I and we worship Jesus, so we're called and we're even commanded, uh, clearly in God's Word, certainly in the letter of Ephesians, to be like Jesus, to live like Him, to be like Him. Ephesians actually pretty neatly divides into two halves. That's the main thing I want you to see, not all the details on the screen, just the fact that there's two halves. The top half is chapters 1 to 3, is the theology, it's the kind of who we are, what we have in Jesus. And then the bottom half is the practice, it's the because of what we have and who we are, what do we do? Um, So Ephesians is really neat, chapters 1 to 3, who we are and chapters 4 to 6, what we do as a consequence of who we are uh, in Christ. If you want a copy of the table, fill out the I'm here today form and let me know and I'll send one to you. So today we're continuing in chapter 5, we're continuing in the what we do as followers of Jesus, what's it mean to live as a follower of Jesus? And the first thing that Paul tells us, well, reminds us of really, he gives us a little bit more who we are in chapter 5 to motivate us to what we do as followers of Jesus. What's our motivation to live for him? Why do we want to be like him rather than Ivan Lendl? Apart from the fact he looks like a dork. Look at verse 1 again in your Bibles. Um, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love. Why? just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We are God's dearly loved children. Jesus died for us, sacrificed himself for us. So as his children, in response to his sacrifice for us, we live for him. That's our greatest motivation. That is the fuel in your engine of living for Jesus, is knowing that he died for you. And that he rose again. When I was in year four and five, I had my favourite teacher ever, Mr Parsons. Mr Parsons was a great teacher. He went the extra mile. He set up 50 science experiments for us to do over the course of the year in our spare time. He got permission from the principal to take us off-site to the local squash courts. So we were the only sporting group that went off-site. That was really cool. He was a great teacher. He went the extra mile. He loved us. He cared for us. He also had strong discipline, you didn't get out of line with Mr Parsons, but that was him loving us too. And I excelled in year four and five more than any other years because of his great love for me. I was inspired to work hard for him because I knew that he loved and cared for me. And so it is for followers of Jesus. We're not just commanded to live like Jesus and live for Jesus, we're inspired to live like Jesus and for Jesus because of his great love for us. The problem is we forget. We're very forgetful. We forget how much God loves us, how much Jesus loves us. And so, because we are forgetful, we read God's Word every day to remind us, aha, that's right, I remember God loves me, and in doing so, we're compelled afresh to live for Him each day. Paul goes on in detail about what that looks like in chapter 5. Verses 3 to 7, live for Jesus when you're in the world rather than living for yourself. I'll read it again. Among you there must not be even a hint 
of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed. Not a hint of any of those things because these are improper for God's holy people. He's set apart people. Nor should there be a hint of obscenity, foolish talk, coarse joking, which are out of place. Rather than those things, there should be thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure or greedy person, such a person's an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. Sexual immorality is sexual acts or thoughts that occur outside the proper relationship of husband and wife as created by God in Genesis 2. It's desiring sex with another that you're not married to, which is lust. It's sexual relationships with boyfriends, girlfriends, anyone other than your husband or your wife. It's satisfying selfish sexual desires, such as looking at pornography. It's sex with yourself, a.k.a. masturbation. Any sexual act outside of the selfless act of sex with your husband or wife is sin, and it's against God's law. Paul says... There must not be even a hint of this amongst God's people. I know it's uncomfortable to talk about these things, but sexual immorality is growing and growing in our world and spreading like a bushfire on a hot, windy, Aussie day in summer. And it devastates our relationships just as a bushfire devastates homes. Pornography, I think, is actually the most destructive sexual immorality at the moment in our world. And it's accessible, affordable and anonymous, which makes it powerful. I liken pornography to a piece of Kentucky Fried Chicken that was accidentally left on the bench before, for a week before it was cooked. On the outside, it seems appealing. And when you first bite in, it tastes great. Going down, it seems somewhat satisfying, but that's, you don't know what's happening in your guts. As the salmonella starts to spread and infect your stomach and your bloodstream... Your temperature rises, your stomach churns, the next thing you'll bend over the toilet regretting every second of that piece of chicken. I actually heard of a lady paralysed from the neck down from salmonella poisoning. You wake up cursing Colonel Sanders and promising yourself never again, but then two or three weeks later your mate says, want to grab KFC? And you're like, oh no, sure, let's do it. Pornography is like rotten KFC for your brain. Might seem like a good idea, might satisfy temporarily, but the second you look at it, it goes to work on your brain, rewiring it. Pornography changes your mind's understanding of sex, will change your view of the opposite sex, and will unhelpfully change your expectations of what's normal for a married couple in the bedroom. Pornography is like rotten KFC for your brain. It makes you sick. If you're watching it, you need to stop. Because it's ruining your brain. And it's ruining your relationships, particularly with those of the opposite sex. The men and women involved in making it are often coerced, sexually abused, drugged and taken advantage of in the worst possible way. And all of this information comes from the Covenant Eyes website. And the author actually adds this on the Covenant Eyes website. The Gospel says, this is my body which is given for you. Porn culture says, this is her body taken by me. 
The gospel says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Porn culture says, relax. There's nothing wrong with your own fantasies. If you want to stop, but you're finding it difficult, you're not alone. And you're not to feel ashamed. Your brain's sick and you need help to make it better. If you had some other sickness, you wouldn't be ashamed. You'd get some help to make it better. It's similar with pornography addiction. If you're sick in the mind, please tell somebody, tell me or a trusted Christian friend or a Christian counsellor and get the help that you need. Those who have teenage children or soon should all have accountability software on every device for their sake in your household, on their phones, on the computers. Accountability software is extremely helpful in protecting our children from pornography. Internet accountability is not foolproof. Heart change is what's necessary, but it makes a massive difference. And I've just spent almost 10 minutes on that because pornography is just destroying our world in so many ways. It's massive and we need to get on top of it as a church. Let's move on. If you want to talk more about this and get help, I'm more than happy to talk to you. Morning tea, on the phone, email me, text me, anything. Get some help. If you know someone who needs some help, encourage them to ask for help. Paul also mentions impurity, greed, obscenity, foolish talk, coarse joking in the same vein. I think he's talking about jokes and conversations of the inappropriate sexual nature, which are all too common in many of the cultures that we live and work in. Greed is there in the context of sexual immorality as well. It is out of greed or self-serving rather than God-serving that we commit acts of sexual immorality. We might be greedy for food or money or sex, so we take it, we serve ourselves, rather than trusting God to give us all we need, rather than serving Him with His abundant provision. Sex is often the topic of obscene jokes and foolish talk. Most comedians these days are just filthy and disgusting in their language and in the jokes that they tell. Sex is a good gift from God and it's been horrendously warped by our world. It's not to be belittled, it's not to be made fun of in an unhelpful way for the sake of a cheap laugh or to win brownie points with a friend. Sex is to be given thanks for, verse 4. It's a great gift for married couples to unite them in a most special way. And Paul says that the one who's committed to living a life of sin, of self-serving, with no, with no regard for God or loan or thankfulness to God, that one has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Verse 5 is not saying if you ever sin, then you can't possibly be forgiven. Verse 5 is not saying that, and we need to remember Ephesians 1 to 3, which talks about what it means to be saved and the great grace of God through Jesus that saves us from our sins and forgives us for our sins even before we've even committed them. This is within the realms of grace that God, that Jesus gives these, sorry, that God gives these commands to us through Paul. So verse 5 isn't saying if you ever sin, if you ever look at pornography, well, that's it, you're out of the kingdom of heaven. But it's talking about a life committed to living for yourself rather than a life committed to living for Jesus. There's no forgiveness for that person. Verse 6, Let no one deceive you with empty words. Because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. 
Therefore, do not be partners with them. Do not partner with those who are committed to ignoring God with their lives. Do not partner with them in their joking. Do not partner with them in their looking at porn or gossiping or greediness or anything like that. Certainly do not partner with them in marriage. If they're not committed to living for God, don't partner with them in their sinfulness. If you're not married and your partner's urging you into a sexual relationship, you need to ask them to stop or end the relationship. Our relationship with Jesus is our number one priority. It must always be our priority. Otherwise, we have no relationship with him at all. If Jesus isn't first, we don't have a relationship with him at all. Now, we're not called to avoid the world completely. We're called not to partner with people in their sin. Does that make sense? See the distinction? We, can, we must be in the world and we must be seeking to share the gospel with people we work with and our families and whatnot. But we don't partner with people in their sin. We don't get involved. That's improper for us, God's people. We're living for Christ. We're not chameleons blending into the world, as we talked about last Sunday. We are different. We are set apart. We are holy. So, living for Jesus in the world and living like Jesus in the world, we live for him and like him. Look at verses 8 to 12. You were once darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord... Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, <coughs> but rather expose them. It's shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. We once lived in darkness in our thinking, in our actions, but we've been brought into the light. We've been showed how to live. We've been illuminated in our minds and therefore our words and actions. Our evil deeds have been exposed and dealt with at the cross. As followers of Jesus, as his apprentices, it's our job to find out what pleases him and then do that with our lives. Verse 10. Well, how do we do that? How do we know what God wants us to do? Well, we read the Bible. <laughs> Ephesians 1 to 3, who we are as Christians, 4 to 6, what to do. We can read Ephesians. It will tell us how to live, what to do, the kind of Guesswork's taken away from us. It's kind of life's easier for followers of Jesus because we know, we know how to live. We're told how to live. We don't need to work it out for ourselves. It's great. <clears throat> we expose the deeds of darkness. Do your work colleagues gossip and badmouth and tell, tell dirty jokes? Well... Don't get involved. Speak up against their actions. Expose the darkness. When your schoolmates are up to no good and you say, guys, let's not do that. Girls, let's not do that. You expose their darkness. I remember when I became a Christian working in a factory. It's very hard to be a Christian working in a factory. People love to swear and tell dirty jokes and all that kind of thing. I was in a team of five guys. Every team had a team locker. In one of my moments of clarity on night shift, I decided to clean out the team locker, which included cleaning out a stack of 20 porn magazines in the bottom. A couple of guys kind of said a bit of, hey, what are you doing? But no one really <laughs> fought me on it particularly hard. So I just chucked them out. 
Um, I did them a favour. I exposed the darkness. Um, it was hard living in a factory as a Christian and I, some days I did well and some days it was hard and you slip into dirty joking and that kind of thing when I was a young Christian. Um, but interestingly, over the years, as I tried to live a Christian life and expose darkness, I found that my teammates, if they had a problem or a struggle or they wanted some answers on something, they'd often come to me and ask me for advice about things, question me about God even sometimes. When we live as light and expose the darkness, I figure it can go one of three ways. Either people will turn on you, which can be rough, but you still need to stick to your guns. They might ignore you, which actually doesn't hurt at all if someone just doesn't want to talk to you. Well, okay. Or they might agree with you and then put their trust in Jesus. Look at verse 13. Everything exposed by the light becomes visible and everything that's illuminated becomes a light. This is why it says, Wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. When Jesus chooses to shine his light into the heart of someone and make them put their trust in him, they awaken. They spiritually arise from the dead and become a light. Isn't that fantastic? The light in verse 13 is the Christian who's been illuminated by Christ. And that light has great power through the work of the Holy Spirit to transform others in their thinking. So we live as light in the world, although it's hard, for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of others that Christ might work through us. If you're willing to live God's way, have people turn on you and ignore you, you might find that you see people saved by Jesus through your efforts, through your light. So we live like him in the world and we live like him when we're at church as well, verses 15 to 20. Be very careful then how you live, not as wise, but not as unwise, but as wise, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Be careful, it says. I was just talking to my dad yesterday about how we're getting lazy, I think, as a culture in thinking about the right way to live. And we're getting lazy as parents and our kids are getting involved on social media with all this horrendous stuff and these horrendous influences and we're not even noticing because we're not being careful how we live and how they live. We need to be careful. I'm not saying you guys, I'm saying our culture is getting lazy, not being careful, not being wise. How do we do that? How do we be wise? We know what the Lord's will is. We study God's word. Keep going back to studying God's word. Study God's word and you'll grow as a Christian, guaranteed. If you don't, you won't, guaranteed. Simple as that. Take every opportunity in your life to bear the family likeness. To live like Jesus, as his child, dearly loved. Verse 18 forbids drunkenness, but did you notice? It kind of doesn't forbid drunkenness, it forbids what happens when you get drunk. Did you see? 
don't get drunk because that leads to debauchery. Don't get drunk because you lose control of your actions and you start to be ungodly. So therefore, you need to avoid drunkenness because of what comes next. We want to live as people who love others, who are kind to others all the time. And when we drink to excess, we lose that ability to love others as Christians. Therefore, we avoid drunkenness. There's a good reason behind the law. God doesn't forbid drinking alcohol unless you're under 18. We are to obey our governments on that one. God does forbid breaking the law of the land in that regard. So, instead of living unwisely, Paul writes, be filled with the Spirit at the end of verse 18. I think it's a funny thing to say to Christians who have the Spirit, be filled with the Spirit. We are filled with the Spirit. What's Paul mean? Well, Paul, Paul's words echo chapter 4, verse 3. In church, we're committed to living for the best interests of one another, and Paul lists five ways to do that. One, speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. It's frustrating that we can't sing at the moment. It's good and right that we keep having music and we keep being reminded from the stage, thank you today, Bethany, of the truths of the gospel through song. When we sing, we're not just singing to God, but we're singing to one another. Um, it makes closing your eyes a strange thing to do because we're singing to one another when we sing songs in church. In fact, back in the days, some churches had the pews facing the middle. There's actually a one at college called Cash Chapel where the pews face the middle. So you face half the church when you're in church, which kind of feels strange at the start, but it really gets the point across that we sing to one another. We sing the gospel truths to one another. We encourage one another. When we say the creeds, maybe we should stand in a circle because we say them to one another. Um, second, thirdly, sing and make music from your heart. I like this one because I can't sing very well. So this is an encouragement to you if you can't sing very well, like me. Sing and make music from your heart. I think that's saying reflect upon God's goodness throughout the day. Have joy in your heart knowing the truths of what God has done for you through Christ. Sing and make music, that's two and three. Fourth, always give thanks to God in everything. How's thankfulness gone for you in 2020? Whether in hardship or joy, always give thanks to God. I think if you went home and made a list of all the things you can be thankful for, you'd be surprised at how many there are on the list. There's much to be thankful for. It's been a hard year. It's been easy to grumble this year, but we have much to be thankful for. And when we grumble, we deny God's goodness, even when things are rough. I'm reminded of a lady, a story through Open Doors, who was locked in a shipping container for three years, separated from her child, and she sang every day songs of praise to God because although she was removed from her child, she still had Christ. Amazing. I'm thankful for forgiveness, for forgiveness of sins through Jesus. My biggest problem is dealt with. I'm thankful to God for all, have, who, all who have willingly laboured in our church this year because it's been hard. I'm thankful for you, my partners in the gospel. I'm thankful for a great church staff team who've all worked hard through the year for Jono and Ben and Kate. 
I'm thankful for my leadership team who have persevered in gathering. We met on um, Zoom once a week when COVID first hit to talk about how we're going to best continue to lead the church uh, through COVID. I'm thankful for the leadership team. I'm thankful for my loving wife and three beautiful children. And I could go on and on and on in the things I have to thank God for. We all have much to be thankful for if we make the time to consider all the things we have to be thankful for. I'm going to wrap up. Always give thanks in everything, Paul says. Everything. When things go your way and when things don't go your way, when people treat you as you feel like you deserve to be treated and when they don't, always give thanks. Because that reminds you that God is in control. Thank you, God, for that person who's treating me terribly right now. Because even that is in your control. Thank you, God, for the hardships and the suffering in my life. Because I know you're in control and you've got a good purpose behind it. Always give thanks. It respects God for his goodness. It acknowledges his rule. He's in charge, not us. Always give thanks. It will lead you back to the grace and salvation that you have in Jesus. If you start to rattle off things you'll be thankful for, it won't be long until you go, oh, I'm saved from my sin through Jesus. No matter what's happening, how good is that? You've been called out from the crowd to be God's precious possession, made to live for him. So imitate Jesus in everything you do. I still can't hit a very good single-handed backhand, even though I've been playing comp tennis again for two years now. It's still terrible. But who cares? It doesn't matter. Living like Jesus matters. That matters most. Whatever it is that we do that we're good at in the world, that's good. Do it well. But what matters most and what matters eternally is that we're living for Jesus and that we're living like him and that we're living for him. Whatever you do, do it in the name of Jesus. Live like him. Before you do anything, before you say anything, before you watch anything, before you buy anything, ask yourself... How does this honour Jesus? How am I living for him in what I do or say or buy? Am I doing this for him, my Lord and Saviour, or am I doing this for me? Then make the decision that pleases him. Paul says, work out how to please Jesus with your life and then give thanks to him for all that you have. If you do that, friends, you might be shocked at how content you suddenly feel in life with where you are and with what you have. How do I please Jesus? How do I give thanks for what I have? Read God's word, live for him, give thanks in everything. You'll find real peace within not because you have to, but because you know how much you're loved and you'll find peace. Let me pray. Loving Father and Almighty God, you are good and holy 
and pure, you're right in everything, you're true, you're in control, and we are so keen to grab control from you and live the way we want and do things the way we want. We're so quick to grumble because things are the way you want them and they're not the way we want them. And Lord, we repent of our selfish pride and arrogance. We ask you for forgiveness. We ask you for thankfulness. We ask you for peace. We ask you for contentment by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.